So last night we began to look at the canons of Dort and we were introduced to the issue at hand in this debate, which was, did God choose the elect because they would believe or did God choose the elect so that they, so that they would believe? And the first five articles explained though the what of judgment, the gospel and grace. And then articles seven through 11 spoke to the why of those matters. Why is it this way? And so this morning, we're going to pick it back up at Article 12 in this first main point of doctrine, which speaks towards the believer's assurance, the assurance that the believer should have that they are, in fact, saved. So Article 12 says, Assurance of their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measure. So, in other words, the assurance that someone has isn't always the same. There, there could be someone with great assurance. There could be someone with struggling and weak assurance. And then it says, Such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves, with spiritual joy and holy delight, the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. And then Article 13, the fruit of this assurance. In their awareness and assurance of this election, God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God, to adore the fathomless depth of God's mercies, to cleanse themselves, and to give fervent love in return to the one who first so greatly loved them. This is far from saying that this teaching concerning election and reflection upon it makes God's children lax in observing his commandments or carnally self-assured. By God's just judgment, this does usually happen to those who casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it, but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen. So this is an important section in the canons, I feel. It's, it's very pastoral. It shows humility in that it understands how this doctrine actually impacts the church in a unique way. There's a desire in it to help struggling Christians, to help Christians who are struggling with this idea and this doctrine of election that the scriptures teach. But Because for some people, studying the doctrine of election turns out to be an anxiety-inducing endeavor rather than a comforting one. But the point that the canons are wanting to make is that the scriptures are actually intending to comfort us here and to encourage us in grace. You see, if election is misunderstood, it could easily lead to a person having doubts about their eternal state. And you could probably imagine how this goes. It's, it's, well, if God just elects people from before the foundation of the world, well, then how do I know I'm elect? If God elects and it has nothing to do with what I do or who I am, then nothing special in me, then how can I really know if I'm numbered among those who are chosen? What if I'm not elect and you know my profession is a sham? And those are honest questions that sometimes people will have. But note the encouragement in the canons. We are warned against inquisitive searching into the deep and hidden things of God. The reason being, we can't know what God's decree was before it took place in time. None of us were there to know his decree. And what we do know, we know because he has revealed it in nature and his word. And so instead of freaking ourselves out and trying to pry into the secret will of God, to like try to see if there's some mark on us or something that says I'm elect, 
What we should do is look for those unmistakable fruits of election, as Article 12 says. We should look to see, you know, how do I know if I'm elect, in other words? Well, is there a true faith in you? Is there a childlike fear of God? Is there godly sorrow over sin? Is there a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? And this isn't to say necessarily that we should be like fruit inspectors. Like we're looking at our bodies and our, and our profession to see if we have enough fruit to evidence that we are Christians. No, it doesn't, the canons don't say how much of these things there should be. But the point is, is that there's evidence in your life of faith. And you understand your election because of that. The simplest way to put it, I think, is like this. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? Not an audible voice, okay? I've never heard the audible voice of Jesus. I'm not a heretic or some weirdo. But do you believe what the Bible says about you and the salvation that is offered to you? Jesus himself talks about it this way in John 10. If you have your Bible, you could open up to John 10. John's gospel is really helpful with all of these matters, truthfully. But in John 10, Jesus is having a discussion with some people. There are believers there and people who don't believe. And he's, in this specific instance, he's dealing with the issue of false teachers. People who desire to come into the church, which Jesus calls a sheepfold, and then to steal them away, which is part of you know, God's sovereign will and plan anyway, as well. But look at what he says in verse 14 to 16. And this is probably a well-known statement of Christ. But he says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, and one shepherd. So other sheep that are not of this fold. He's specifically there mentioning of the nation of Israel, the old covenant people of God, but he's talking about future things that will happen, that he has other sheep that will hear his voice. And of course, we know that soon after this, Jesus was crucified, he died, he was buried, and then on the third day, he rose again. And then shortly thereafter, he was seen by many witnesses and the apostles and the disciples. And then he ascended to heaven. So how is it that these other sheep from another fold, before the church even branched out of Jerusalem? Remember in Acts 1.8, it talks about the spread of the church, that we'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and all Judea and to the ends of the earth. Well, how do those people, these other sheep that he's talking about, hear his voice? This is important to think of when we try to understand this question, this difficult question, how do I know that I'm really elect? The best thing to do is not to look within ourselves or to contemplate the decree of God, but simply consider, do I believe Jesus? Do I believe what it is that he has said and done. Do I desire him and am grateful for the forgiveness he gives? Because guess what, of course? People who aren't elect don't actually care about those things. And then in Article 13, the canon guards against sinful appropriations of this doctrine. In other words, election should not cause pride to dwell up in you. 
If you understand that you're elect and chosen by God, that should not be something that makes you feel like you're elite and better than everybody else. Election should humble you. Being chosen by God does not mean, in the way that the Reformed understand it at least, this wouldn't be true for the Arminians, but being chosen by God does not mean that you are better or smarter or more worthy than other people. This doctrine is for humility. It should make you cry out, Why me, O God? Why is your love upon me? Why have mercy on me? God, even now after salvation, we should think that. We don't see ourselves of worthy of it, I think, right? Our sin is still before us, even as believers. And this doctrine of election, properly understood, should humble us. Which at the same time, I think actually makes you strong in Christ. It gives you strength in the midst of trials. That no matter what is going on in the world, you know that God is for you in Christ. There should be no such thing as a proud Calvinist or an indifferent Calvinist. A Calvinist, by the nature of the doctrine that the Calvinist proclaims to believe and to teach, should be warm and patient, knowing that God is sovereign and accomplishing his will. Now, I know that not every person who professes to be a Calvinist is like that, that people aren't perfect. But the doctrines that the Calvinist professes to believe, them themselves don't lend themselves to pride or arrogance. It lends itself to humility and charity among mankind. But of course, mankind is sinful, and so it doesn't always end up in that way. I'm not trying to apologize for those people, but I'm just trying to point out what these things actually should entail in the life of, of a believer who believes them and holds them to be dear. Now, the rest of the first point of doctrine speaks towards how we should handle this doctrine. Articles 15 to 16 deal with reprobation. Reprobation is simply a description of those people that God did not elect for salvation, right? So you have those who are elect, meaning chosen for salvation, and then you have those who are what we would call reprobate, which means not chosen for salvation. We've talked about that some already yesterday, and for the sake of time, we're going to skip those points of doctrine in the canons. Article 17 deals with the matter of infant believers who die which is a big topic, one we've covered at our evening service last year. And so we're going to skip that one too for the sake of time. So I want to close out the first point of doctrine in the Canons of Dort. And to do so, we're going to look at Articles 14 and then Article 18. So Article 14 says, Teaching election properly. And there we read, By God's wise plan, this teaching concerning divine election was proclaimed through the prophets, Christ himself, and the apostles in the Old and New Testament times. It was subsequently committed to writing in the Holy Scriptures. So also today in God's church, for which it is specifically intended, this teaching must be set forth with a spirit of discretion, in a godly and holy manner, at the appropriate time and place, without an inquisitive searching into the ways of the Most High. This must be done for the glory of God's most holy name and for the lively comfort of His people. So in other words, telling us how to talk about election. Article 18, the proper attitude toward election and reprobation. To those who complain about this grace of an undeserved election and about the severity of a just reprobation, we apply or we reply with the words of the apostle, 
Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Romans 9.20. And the words of our Savior. Have I no right to do with what I want with my own? Matthew 20.15. We, however, with reverent adoration to these secret things, cry out with the apostle. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways are beyond tracing. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? To him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. So, Two other points to discuss. Article 14, really, I I feel like it's a summary of the ideas put forth in Article 12 and 13, but it differentiates itself from them by pointing out this idea of election and God choosing people to bestow his grace upon and others leaving out, that it's not just a new covenant idea. It's interesting because we live in a culture, and this apparently has been the same even since the canon, the time of the early part of the 17th century when the canons of Dort were drafted and this meeting was had. But we sometimes act as if this doctrine of election is simply a new covenant thing. That this is an issue that we don't really think about in the Old Testament. And the canons are wanting to be clear that, no, no, that's a mistake. That this is what we see God doing from Genesis on. That God's purpose in election has been witnessed at length, even in the Old Testament, much before this specific debate of Calvinism and Arminianism was even born. And most people who struggle with this doctrine of God electing based purely on his own freedom, they don't seem to mind that, for example, God chose Abraham and covenanted with him. Right? God chose Abraham out of the, the, from the land of Ur, and he called him and he told him to go to a specific land. Why? Why Abraham and not someone else? Or God chose Israel. Why Israel? Not Egypt. Why not China? You know, why, not, why, these, why specifically Israel, not some other nation? Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Speaking of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other of the people that the Lord set his than any other people that the Lord set his love on and chose you. For actually Israel, he says, was the fewest of all peoples. And then verse eight. But it is because the Lord loves you. In other words, God is operating according to his good pleasure. And then it says, And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And also, if we were to do a survey of all the important texts in the Old and the New Testaments on this doctrine, we should do it with care for God's glory and humility in seeking to understand that the those very things, humility and seeking God's glory, are the things that God produces in you when he saves you as well. And then in Article 18, it reminds us of the attitude that we should have when it comes to this topic, and really any topic that concerns what God says. And that is that in the first place, we would do well to remember that we are never standing as judge over God. We as believers, as Christians, as just basically even humans, 
can never stand as judge over God. God is the creator. We are his creation. That is a proper attitude that should be maintained in this discussion, especially for the sake of God's glory. And so that makes us think of a couple of things when we talk about this and we engage people on it. Number one, we should do away with caricatures of Calvinism and even of Arminianism as well, but I don't really hear caricatures of that that much. But we should deal, do away with caricatures of Calvinism. There are some ministries that exist out there that seem to be in business to make caricatures of the doctrines of grace. And this is shameful. Even if one disagrees, you know, aren't we still brothers? Why slander each other? And so, for example, God does not condemn people because they are reprobate. That's something that people who misunderstand Calvinism say. The reality is, is God condemns people for sin and unbelief, from which God, according to his good pleasure and sovereign grace, has also purposed to save the elect from. And further, you know, God is not just capriciously choosing to create innocent people so that he might damn them for his glory. The reprobate aren't just some innocent group of people. If you hear an anti-Calvinist say that, they should be embarrassed for saying that. And if Calvinists believe that, they should be ashamed. Because God's not simply making people as his playthings to put under his magnifying glass and then zap them. Remember, Dort affirms what the scriptures say. That God is dealing with people who are all already fallen. A, a mass of sinners is what they called it. Not simply fallen in time, but from his eternal decree before we even did anything good or bad. And so reprobation is not about God decreeing to punish an innocent people. Because for one, no one is innocent. We've talked about that already. We're going to talk about it more in the next session as well. People willfully sin. And salvation is, in fact, the redemption of the guilty. Salvation isn't the redemption of those who were a little bit better than the rest. Salvation is the redemption of the guilty. But according God, according to his own plan and purpose, did not choose everyone. And it does not make God unjust to withhold mercy and grace. Because for one, it's not as if he's withholding it from people who want it. Simply put, if someone wants grace and mercy from God, if they truly want it, then they should believe that they've already received it. Because to want it is a good thing. And the scriptures tell us that no one is good, no, not one. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And no one seeks after God. Romans 3, 10 through 12. And so if a person is actually seeking after God and is wanting those good things, then it must be because God has done something good in them first. We'll talk about that more later as well. And then secondly, we should deal with, these, with this doctrine with discretion. In other words, with wisdom. You know, if you're out doing evangelism or you're engaging with a family member with the gospel, it's not necessary to get into the doctrine of election with them. It needs to come up at some point because it's good and it's a humbling doctrine, but there's a time and a place for it, as Article 14 says. We're not to just bash people over the head with this. We're not keeping it hidden either. We're just to use discretion. Because again, when it comes to the gospel, we don't need to pry into, eternal, into the eternal decree, since we can't anyways. We, we couldn't do it even, even if we wanted to. 
It, it comes down to helping people when it comes to evangelism. What it comes down to, really, I think, is helping people to see if they can hear Jesus' voice or not. And you go from there. Do they believe they're a sinner? Do they believe that that sin then merits them the wrath of God? And good news for them if they believe those things, because there's been one who has taken the punishment that sin demands in your place. And we'll get to that later as well. And there's one other thing that tends to happen, and I hope it won't happen to many of you guys, truthfully, because many of you are growing up in a church that preaches the doctrines of grace. But some, when they come out of a, a more squishy evangelical tradition, and they learn of the sovereign grace of God, and they see how comforting it is, and they see how, really, I, I think I would say, plain it is in Scripture, it helps us, or it, it, what happens for those people who come out of this background is it blinds them to the point of the doctrine, which is to be humble. And so you have, this is a, a known term, you have people that when they first understand these doctrines of grace and the fact that God is sovereign over salvation, they, they become what's known as like a cage stage Calvinist. And it's kind of a funny term, but the, the idea behind it is that we need to put these people in a cage and lock them up so they don't ruin the glory of God with their, with their talking. Because the idea that the canis put forth again is to use discretion in these matters. But the point of these doctrines is not to bash people over the head with them and to tell people about you know, God's election. Because again, it's not supposed to bring pride up in us. It's supposed to humble us. And we deal with them in such a way that gives God glory. And when it comes to sharing the gospel with someone, you know, this isn't something that has to be mentioned on that very first gospel interaction or even the second and the third. It's something that, again, is supposed to be a comfort to believers when they're already believing so that their hope is not in themselves at all, but that their hope is in God who has done it all for them. And so we don't want to have cage stage Calvinists, but it happens. And I think it happens out of a sincere frustration and anger for being taught one way for so long that seems to be contradictory well I, that I think it is contradictory to what the scriptures say so in closing up this first point of doctrine we should remember a few things the orthodox understanding of election contrary to the critics isn't a means to make people live unholy lives without fearing hell see the idea is some people say oh well if you're elect well then just go ahead and live wickedly Go, if you're elect and God's chosen you and you can't do anything to lose that salvation, well, then it doesn't even matter how you live. Just go ahead and enjoy your sin, do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. Well, that's not what this doctrine says. That's a caricature and it's false because those who are elect will pursue holiness. We'll talk about that later. It's not a means to make people live unho unholy lives without fearing hell. It's a means to humble us. It helps us to understand the weight of grace that has been laid upon us because we didn't deserve it. And from this point of doctrine that, 18, that the 18 articles address, we see in it the doctrine of total depravity as well, which will be alluded to. Uh, it's alluded to now, but we'll deal with that tonight. That mankind is truly fallen in all his faculties. And in that and how in that, salvation then must be by the free choice of God in what we would call unconditional election. There are no conditions in us that made God elect us. That's the U in that acronym, TULIP. That's what we've been dealing with uh, last night and this morning. To start, to say that election is all according to the counsel of God's will. And so now, 
let's turn our attention to the second main point of doctrine. And by the way, the first main point of doctrine was the longest, so we're going to do the whole second main point with our rest of the time this morning, and we're going to read the first two articles here. And by the way, you know, we're, we're going fast through these. I think there's a lot more to say about these, but we're just trying to understand them as a whole as much as we can. So, the second main point of doctrine is Christ's death and human redemption through it. Article 1 says, The punishment which God's justice requires. So we read, God is not only supremely merciful, but he's also supremely just. This justice requires, as God has revealed in the word, what the sins we have committed against his infinite majesty, majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as of body. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's justice. Article 2 is the satisfaction made by Christ. And we read, Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction or deliver ourselves from God's wrath, God in boundless mercy has given us a guarantee of his only begotten Son, who is made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that he might give satisfaction for us. By that, give satisfaction to God's wrath for the sin that we merit his wrath with. So what we're talking about here in these first two articles is our understanding of Christ's substitutionary atonement. If we're thinking of it in that acronym TULIP, it's the L, which we would call limited atonement. And here we see the canons laying the groundwork for the biblical understanding of it. It might be better actually to call this point of doctrine particular redemption or definite atonement even. And we'll see in this section that there is care to not just talk about the extent of the atonement. In other words, who did Christ die for? But we also must think of the nature of the atonement as well. In other words, did God the Son simply die to make salvation possible? Or did he die to make people saved? That's a big distinction, and that's at the heart of this matter. And this isn't just the theological wordplay, friends. The how and the why of worship is at stake here. Bad theology has its consequences. It leads to despair and to doubt and to worry. And proud theology leads to disdain, anger, and unreasonableness. But a humble heartfelt Reformed theology should always lead to what we call doxology, to joyful worship of the triune God. Now, in those first two articles we read, there shouldn't really be anything controversial in them to anyone. I mean, it's basic Christianity 101. And so before we talk about the, nat the nature and the extent of the atonement, we need to remember that the atonement is necessary. That's what these first two articles is doing. It's just saying the fact that there is sin and there needs to be some sort of payment for that sin. It's interesting, actually. This second point of doctrine doesn't actually mention the word atonement, even though the concept is clearly there. Dort's point in this doctrine, or in this point, main point of doctrine, is not first about how to deal with estranged parties and how it is they get reconciled. Think of the word atonement, even if you break it down, it's, it's at-one-ment. But it's, what it's dealing with is how God's justice is satisfied. And so remember, God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.26. And this point is establishing the biblical view here. 
Typically, or modernly at least, when people want to talk about the cross, they want to focus on the love of God. And the love of God is certainly there when we think about the cross. Um, We shouldn't neglect it even when we think about the cross. But we also want to affirm the cross is an expression of a justice-satisfying sacrifice. And modernly, that aspect isn't spoken of it as much. So Article 1 begins by affirming that God is not only supremely merciful or loving, for that matter, but he's also supremely just. He's supremely good. And so we should never downplay the love of God at the cross, but also, don't miss this, we can't really understand what love is unless we recognize that God sent his son in love to be the wrath satisfying the propitiation for our sins, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. That's, what it, that's where the love of the cross is at. Not simply that he, this man just died, and we know he's a, the God-man, but that his death satisfied God's wrath against sin. That's what is so loving about it. And as the first article says, we deserve punishment, here and now, as well as in eternity, in body and in soul. And the only way that we can escape this judgment, this punishment of God's wrath, um, is for God's wrath to be satisfied. He can't, he's holy, he's good and just. So he can't just wink at it or forget about it, that it ever happened. And that means that our only hope for salvation has to be in his beloved son and what he did to satisfy justice. He was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place, as Article 2 says. That's drawing from Galatians and from 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that in him we might have the righteousness of Christ. When we think about the problems that exist in this world, we have to deal with, and others as well, we must remember that mankind's biggest problem is always sin. And the only remedy that we have for that is Christ's sacrificial death upon the cross. And think of what he does there for us, friends. He stands in our place condemned. The condemnation that we deserve. Christ took that on the cross. And he seals our pardon by his blood. Hallelujah. What what a savior. There is none that can do what he did for us. And And the way that we satisfy our penalty of sin would be by an eternity in hell in living in complete rebellion of God for that whole eternity. And the next point of, um, the next section in this main point of doctrine then is going to deal with the nature of Christ's atonement. So let's read it. Article 3, the infinite value of Christ's death. The death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Article 4, reasons for this infinite value. This death is of such great value and worth for the reason that the person who suffered it was, as was necessary to be Savior, not only true and perfectly holy human, but also the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Another reason is that this death was accompanied by the experience of God's wrath and curse, which we, by our sins, fully deserve. So the point of Dort here is to make it clear that there was 
nothing lacking in the sacrificial death that Christ made for sinners. His death, we read, is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the world. And notice in that, notice in that, that it doesn't say that Christ's death did sufficiently atone for the sins of the world, but that it was sufficiently worthy to atone for the sins of the whole world, if that had been God's attention. When you, when you hear people talk about a limited atonement, they aren't meaning to limit the power of it. The power of it was perfect, accomplishing all that God intended. And in some way, though, we must limit the atonement. We either limit its power or we limit its scope. Uh, the Arminians were limiting its power so that it only makes Christ's atonement, Christ's atonement only makes salvation possible for people. They needed to add something to it. Or, like the Reformed were wanting to argue for, the scope of it is limited. Does it go to everybody? And the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that it's a definite atonement for those that it was attended for. Here's a small sample. Bless you. Matthew one twenty one, And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? He saves his people from their sins. The atonement is saving his people from their sins, not the whole world. Matthew twenty twenty eight, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. For many. Matthew twenty six twenty eight, for when he's instituting the Lord's Supper. For this is my blood of the new covenant, and it's represented by a glass of wine, which is shed for many, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. John 10, 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. We read this earlier. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? They are people who hear Jesus' voice. They are those who believe. Right? Not for the whole world. Then he says, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Not for everybody, but for those who were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Those are the sheep. And notice what Dort says about the value of Christ's death. It locates it in two places, actually. Uh, and, and this is essential for our understanding of Christ's mediatorial work for us. It was valuable, Dort says, because Christ was a true and perfectly holy human, and also because he is the only begotten Son of God. And so, in other words... Christ had to be a true man to atone for mankind's sins. And it was necessary for him to be true God so that he could be a holy sacrifice, unstained from sin. The biblical word we use is Christ was impeccable, unable to sin and did not have any sin in him. And the second point that we see here, and that's what made him an acceptable and accepted sacrifice, right? We know that his sacrifice on the cross was accepted from God. How? Because he didn't stay dead. Because he rose from the grave on the third day. That's why if you hear people that are denying the resurrection, which that even happens in early church history times, Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians even, they've lost Christianity, if there is no resurrection, then we are we are all then Christ's sacrifice was not accepted, and we're all still dead in our sins. But because He has been resurrected, we do know then that our sins would be forgiven because of what He has done for us in our place. And that again speaks to the reality of who He did it for, 
because we know that not everybody's sins are forgiven because not everybody goes to heaven, and we'll deal with that more as well. A second point here that we see is an affirmation of penal substitutionary atonement. That is to say that God, that, excuse me, that Christ paid the penalty we deserve as being a sin-bearing sacrifice in our place. He paid God's wrath and curse, Article 4. It's legal. It's a legal action that he did, right? It's a legal transaction. The wages of sin are death. So think of it if you had a job, right? If you have a job and you, you earn, you do certain things, you earn money for it. Well, according to how God is explaining to us this transaction of sin and grace and mercy, that the way that we live, the things we do, the wages we earn is death. And that demands payment. And so the, 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 the way that Dort is explaining Christ's atonement is to say that that payment has been made by Christ. It's legal. It's penal. And it was, he was a substitute in our place that satisfies God's wrath. And then because these things are true, Dort goes on to a new section, Articles 5 through 7. Article 5, the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. It says, moreover, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. Article 6, unbelief is a human responsibility. However, that many who have been called through the gospel do not repent or believe in Christ, but perish in unbelief, is not because the sacrifice of Christ offered on the cross is deficient or insufficient, but because they themselves are at fault. Article 7, faith is God's gift, but all who genuinely believe and are delivered and saved by Christ's death from their sins and from the destruction receive this favor solely from God's grace, which God owes to no one, given to them in Christ from eternity. So, it's inevitable in a fallen world but whenever we declare the high sovereignty of God, questions will soon follow about human responsibility. If God is in control of everything, well then does that make us puppets? Does that make us robots? And so even before Dort gets to saying that Christ's death was for the elect specifically, it clarifies what this means and what it doesn't mean in three different categories. Evangelism, unbelief, and then faith. Remember earlier, Dort instructed us when talking about election, and we see here to use discretion when evangelizing, and we see here in this article that we just read instruction for the gospel and evangelism, and guess what's missing from it? You see, it's not necessary to bring up election in those instances in every time when we're out sharing the gospel. And the reality is, is that the high sovereignty of Calvinism actually empowers missions work and evangelism. It is a caricature to say that election snuffs out the work of missions and evangelism because evangelism is the means that God uses to bring about the salvation of the elect. The sharing of the gospel by appointed people is the means that God uses to accomplish his ends. And so here in article five, we have a clear and bold mandate to preach the gospel to all people. Calvinists should be mission-minded people by, by nature of what we believe. We're not just to preach to the elect, to the church, and we don't know who the elect are until they evidence it even. 
And so the gospel, along with the command to repent and believe, are to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and all people, as Article 5 says. And then then a version of the atonement that is unlimited in scope, meaning the view that Christ died for every person who ever lived, either before the cross or after the cross, that's essentially what the Arminians were teaching. A view of the atonement like that isn't necessary for are required for the universal proclamation of the gospel. The Bible is plain here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, the Great Commission, the spreading of the gospel and the doctrine of Christ is the means by which God accomplishes his purposes of salvation. And it's based on the fact that Christ actually did make atonement, meaning that we know that the success of the sharing of the gospel will be fruitful because Christ's atonement actually did accomplish something in the lives of those that it's intended to. It doesn't mean that's going to be fruitful every time, that someone's always going to believe the gospel every time you share it, but we know that those who do believe it, believe it because Christ's death was specifically for them, and, and they were elected in him before the foundation of the world. So it's not necessary to fuel and energize evangelism and missions to think that Christ died for everybody in the whole world. You can be energized and fueled to share the gospel with people even more so because you know that it will succeed because of God's accomplishments in and through the gospel as Reformed theology teaches it. And Dort also realizes that not everyone who hears the gospel will always believe the gospel. But that's not the fault of Christ's atonement. It's not that it wasn't powerful enough, but Dort leaves the responsibility on the individual's fault, which is right. In John 8, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews. If you continue through John 8, by the end of it, they're wanting to actually kill him. But in verse 24, he tells them this. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins. In other words, I mean, the, the emphasis is put back onto them. If you don't believe, it's not the atonement's fault. It's not even God's fault. It's your own fault. That is the effect of sin on us. Unless they believe Jesus is the Messiah, they will die in their sins. And so the reason that people die in their sins, again, isn't because the atonement wasn't powerful enough. It's simply because the individual refuses to believe, which brings us to the next article. Those who do believe, why is that? Why do some believe and others do not? Article 7, those who truly believe, quote, receive this favor from God's grace, which God owes no one. That's Ephesians 2.8, which we looked at yesterday. Belief is the work of God, John 6.29. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. The point being, if we were left to ourselves, we would always choose wickedness. If God does not intervene and act in our lives, we would never think to choose him and righteousness over sin. We'll get more to that. Dorders remind us that the story of predestination, definite atonement, and regeneration, sanctification, and finally glorification, that it's all from God's grace from start to finish. It's all the grace of God, Philippians 1.6 says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
God completes the work in us and he brings it to completion. Not God completes the work and God starts the work on us with our help and then we help him take it to completion. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God starts it and he brings it all the way to completion and to glorification until when we go be, to be with him. Article 8 says <clears throat> the saving effectiveness of Christ's death. This is a little bit longer, but it's just one. So it says, For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all the elect in order that God might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed in the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those whom were chosen from before eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that Christ should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death. It was also God's will that Christ should cleanse them from his blood and all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, so that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people, without spot or wrinkle. This, of course, is the controversial part of the second main point, as it deals now with the scope of the atonement. In some way, Reformed theologians have seen this as inevitable. Uh, it's an, the inevitable conclusion. Once you've established that some people are eternally lost and that atonement was a penal substitutionary atonement, then that would mean that it can't be for everybody. Meaning that if justice was satisfied on the cross, there, like it says in 1 John 4.10, that Christ was a propitiation for God's wrath. And that means that the demands of divine justice have been satisfied, how then could the atonement be anything but particular or definite? In other words, if Christ's death on the cross really did satisfy God's wrath against our sin, which the Bible says it did, how is it possible that people could be in hell if the atonement of Christ completely satisfied God's divine wrath? How could it be charged on Christ and then charged on them again? Right Then God would be charging people for something that Christ already paid for them. That doesn't make sense. That would make God unjust. And so what this article gets at here, to make the strongest point that it possibly can, is the nature of the atonement. The Arminians limited the nature of the atonement, saying that Christ's death made all men savable, but it wasn't enough by itself. This was a departure from the Reformed faith. And the key word to think of is, effectively in the article. It was God's will that Christ through the, the blood of the cross should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and tongue and language and those and only those who are chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father. Again, John 6 is helpful here. John six thirty five through 40. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see that, I hope, there in the text, that what Christ does for us is effective. It is effectual. It accomplishes the intent of God. All that the Father gives him will come to him, and he won't cast them out. He'll lose none, but he'll raise them up on the last day. You see, friends, it's not a hypothetical salvation that is ours when we have it. It's not hypothetical in that we just have to do our part. The nature of Christ's atonement is effectual, effective. And that means the power of its nature is not limited, but the scope of it is. The language of John 6 is plain. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me will not be cast out. Jesus was given a people. They were chosen and they will go to him and he will lose none of them. Why can he say that? Why can he say with such confidence that he'll lose none of them? Because the sacrifice he made was powerful. It accomplished God's end, the propitiation of his wrath, so that those who Jesus died for would be accepted in him, and he won't lose any of them. Article 9, the fulfillment of God's plan. This plan arising out of God's eternal love for the elect from the beginning of the world to the present time has been powerfully carried out and will also be carried out in the future, the gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result, the elect are gathered into one, all in their own time, and there is always a church of believers founded on Christ's blood, a church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, here in all eternity praises him as her Savior who laid down his life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for the bride. So here in the ninth article, we see some insight towards the covenant theology of the pastors at Dort and the appropriate doxology that is produced from a humble, reformed orthodoxy that I mentioned a little bit ago. We, we praise God and rejoice, not because the extent of the atonement is limited. That would be prideful, and it would assume something good in us for being chosen, but We praise God for the nature of the atonement that makes our salvation secure. The atonement describes what God has intended and what the Son of God actually achieved. It's an eternal love for the elect, where we read, I'm reminded of Ephesians 1.4, in love, he predestined us, that's how it was, in love. God, in the way, in this way, loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, John 3.16. And this loving plan of God plays out in time. And even Satan's best efforts won't prevent the elect from being saved. The gates of hell won't prevail and won't prevent God's purposes from coming to pass. And no matter what is going on in this world, the reality is that Christ's atonement was effectual, meaning that it's not dependent upon the strength of men. It means that there will always be a church, the bride of Christ here on earth awaiting the return of the Lord. If if the work of Christ 
that he made upon the cross was also dependent upon some effort of mankind to be applied and effectual, then we could really have no confidence that the church would always be present on the earth. Because it could be possible, right, that no man, no man alive at, that, at this time is worthy enough to receive it, has fulfilled the condition to receive it. But the reality that it's not that way reminds us that the gates of hell will never prevail against Christ's church. Why? Because who's responsible for it? It's God. It's what he's done. It's what he's doing for his church. It's what he has promised. And that gets right at the heart of the gospel, friends. And we miss it, perhaps, because the church and the culture that we live in has been afforded to us with such grace uh, to, to live in the time and the place that we do. But the church can rejoice the world over no matter what persecutions come against her because we know that God is in the business of accomplishing redemption for his people. And it's his strength that brings it to pass. And trust, friends, we can rest in that because the atonement is definite. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we seek to understand your word more. As the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts that we would think of this important doctrine rightly, Lord. We pray that you would not let it become an issue of pride in us. Don't let it be an opportunity for the flesh to be dumb and stupid like it often wants to be, Lord. We pray instead that understanding Christ's penal substitutionary atonement upon the cross for us would be a doctrine that humbles us, would be a doctrine that constantly reminds us to cry out, Why me? Oh God, why show your mercy upon me, a, a miserable sinner often? Let us be humble. Let us be grateful for your great love toward us. And we pray that you will continue to bless our time as we think about what your word says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>